Welcome to the Just Culture Podcast. I'm Mary Jane. On this show, we are dedicated to creating a safe and just healthcare system. It's no secret to the public that the healthcare system is in a crisis. Nurses and doctors are being asked to take care of sicker patients than we've ever had before with less resources and hospitals are operating under a critical staffing shortage. Some hospitals don't even have the staff to stay open, let alone be profitable and care for their communities. This needs to stop. On this show, we are going to have the difficult conversations, take a look at where we're at, and also come up with solutions on how to fix this. Where do we go from here? How do we take care of our caregivers? How do we give our patients the best care? Those are the questions that we are interested in answering here each and every week. Hello, and welcome to the Just Culture podcast with me, Mary Jane Duquette. So um, as promised, I am going to do a little rundown on finance in healthcare. Um, So boring. Um, I know how boring that sounds because I, I don't know if many of you know, but I'm currently working on my master's and I'm doing a dual degree with it, which is a master's in business and a master's in nursing. Um, I'm kind of doing it just for fun, uh, because I talk a lot about healthcare leadership and thought maybe, um, I could gain some insight into all of it. And, um, so here we are, and I think I have. So recently I've taken, I've taken a lot of classes on leadership and, business, you know, handful of those and economics. And I recently learned about finance and something really, um, during the process, I had to do like a reflection at the end on how I'm going to use all my financial knowledge. Many people were writing their responses, like I'm going to go be the best finance officer that ever I'm going to be a chief financial officer. And I'm going to make, you know, people all kinds of money. And I'm, I'm going to do all the things. I didn't like finance. Um, I felt like I wanted to have a good conversation with a finance professional, but I do not care to be the finance professional. And the biggest turnoff from me is there's no people in the decisions, um, aside from predicting people's behavior. Um, the decisions that you make are, um, they're not people-centered, they're money-centered, right? Uh, So the point in finance, my very first day of class, my very first sentence in my finance book I had to read was the purpose of finance professional is to increase the profits of the shareholders of the company. That's their goal. That's their mission. That is what they are there to do. That's what they're hired to do. That's the work that they do, all of it. with the assumption, hopefully, that if you increase the profits of the shareholders of the company, that means that you're kind of working in the best interest of the company itself, which should in turn work in the best interest of the customers, right? So you're Apple and you want to you're the chief financial officer of Apple. And so your job is to get the Apple shareholders the most amount of money. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to look down and say, well, how we get money is we're going to, um, there's different 
ways, right? There's investing. So what are we doing with the money that we have now? Are we letting it sit and rot or are we investing it so that while it's sitting around, it's not rotting, it's growing, right? Or are you going to take your money or are you going to increase sales, right? So how are you going to increase sales? You have to talk, you have to listen to your customer. You have to know what your customer wants and give them what they want. Simple as that, right? Your customer wants a new iPhone every year. Well, let's give them a new iPhone every year and they will upgrade their iPhone and we'll have return customers over and over and over again, making sales over and over and over again. That's, there you go. You've nailed it. Um, but remember, remember, we've said this on multiple occasions, who is the customer in healthcare, right? So if we're the finance professional and we're to give, we're, say we're working in a large corporation, because that's really the heart of where the issues are, right? We're in a large corporation, headquarters is in um, somewhere, United States, hospitals are across multiple states, multiple hospitals in multiple states. Um, I am the chief financial officer working in one central hub, making decisions financially on all of the other hospitals. I am sitting there crunching the numbers, figuring out how am I gonna get the shareholders of this hospital corporation more money? I'm going to make sure they're investing the money they have properly. Yep. I'm going to also make sure that we're increasing the sales and working with our customers and giving them exactly what they want. But the customer in healthcare isn't the patient. The customer in healthcare is the government and the insurance companies. The patient is the given, right? We talked about this analogy in the fact um, with Ford, right? And that they actually really teach the leaders in healthcare, this Six Sigma model, um, which is that there's four, we're going to use trucks. So um, the truck is the widget. So we need to build trucks with the least, as quick, as quick as we can with the least amount of money and resources that we can, because the customer is the person buying the truck. We don't really, we only care about the truck enough to make sure that it's good enough for the customer to want to buy it, right? So so we're building this truck to meet the customer's needs. The customer is going to pay X amount of dollars for a truck. And how I'm going to get money from this truck is that I'm going to cut corners. I'm going to have less staff. I'm going to develop technology to get this truck built faster, quicker, cheaper, so that I can sell it for that same amount of money that the customer is willing to pay for. But if it cost me less to build the truck, I'm going to get more profit because my profit is the money the customer gives me minus what it took me to build the truck that they bought, right? So in healthcare, the insurance company is your customer. They're the one who is going to pay for the healthcare you rendered. Your patient is the widget. So we need to get this patient treated and in, in the door and out the door, the cheapest quickest, fastest, easiest way possible, right? That sounds awful, right? I didn't even want to say it, but that is the reality. There it is. There it is. That's the reality because if the insurance company is going to give you a set amount of money for a surgery, then you are going to, um, whatever it takes to take care of that patient, you're still going to, so say it's going to cost $10,000 for the surgery. That's like way under, but it's, it, we're just work with me here. So this, the insurance company is going to pay you $10,000 to do the surgery. 
And your care, assuming that what it cost for you to take care of that patient was $10,000, that's what the insurance company assumes, is that I'm going to give you $10,000 because that's about how much it should cost. And, you know, and all of the, you know, the surgeon's time, the equipment, the room, the patient, the medication, the staff members to take care of them, it should cost about $10,000. So that's what I'm going to give you to reimburse for the surgery. Well, then you're a CEO or you're a CFO, sorry, you're the financial officer and you're thinking, okay, I'm going to get $10,000. That's a given. So if I, if we spend $10,000 to take care of this patient profit zero, I've made no money from a shareholder. However, if I could skim off a thousand and we did this for $9,000, I'm going to get paid $10,000 and this patient is going to get treated and only cost me $9,000. So that means I get my shareholders a thousand dollars there it is. That's how they make decisions. Um, in healthcare, you can do that to a point, right? So you can, you can do that. How, what is a great analogy for this? So med passes, let's talk about med passes. So patients getting medications on time in a safe manner, properly where the nurse has enough time to spend to go over the five rights of drug administration and do all the double checks that she he or she needs to do to get this patient medication safely get this patient medications on time so that they don't have complications right because if you're giving if your patient has developed a, an arrhythmia so an irregular heart rate and you're giving them a medication every four hours six hours to treat that if you're late they might go back into that arrhythmia again, and now you have complications. And now you're chasing your tail and you're pouring more resources into that patient when all you really needed to do was give that drug on time. And it would have been a lot less resources. So doing things to make sure that the nurse can give medications properly, right? So you can work with the nurse to make sure that they are, um, clumping their medications together, right? So if you have eight o'clock meds and nine o'clock meds, there's no reason for you to do an eight o'clock med pass and a nine o'clock med pass. Put that patient first, right? At You could give all of those nine o'clock meds at 8.30 and then move on to the next one and you've essentially lowered and made your med pass more efficient. There are things that you can do. And newer nurses that are just out of school, that is one of the biggest things that they struggle with is timing out their shift and making things more efficient. They know all of the tasks that they need to do and they do them and they're so oriented to the tasks and organizing and they're learning. And that is part of what they're learning. That is what, how, that is what we're learning brand new nurses, right? In addition to like seeing complications and how they start and getting through that process. Um, but there are things, so there really are things that we can do to make healthcare more efficient so that you don't have a nurse who is doing, you know, all kinds of med passes and then ends up being late on a medication. And now you've got to throw a bunch more resources at this patient for the arrhythmia and you're taken away from your $10,000 um, and any profit margins that you could have. Now, you can do that, but you can only do that to a point because you can skimp, 
on things but there is a point there's a tipping point where you can skimp too much and then you start harming people and i feel like in the united states when they first adapted the um the model the ford model for leadership i feel like they probably made a lot of gains um making mid passes you know easier more efficient creating technologies that made things easier more efficient um you know you have your pixis machine that you can click buttons and then the drawers just open for you versus be sitting in a med room looking all around and going on this shelf walking across the room to this shelf walking across the room to this shelf and you have everything right there you just click the buttons and then all the drawers open and you pull the pills as you go it's it's way more efficient um but there's a maximum to it right and it's how and when do you draw the line? How and when do you draw the line? So um, staffing is one, right? Um, recently saw this, our hospital um, adopted and voted for a nursing union. And in that union, there were stipulations on um, the number of staff members that could be, or patient ratios rather, that nurses, um, one, nurses needed to be paid more. So there was a progression for that. And then also nurses um, had, to, had to have certain patient nurse ratios that they had to meet. And the hospital recognized that if I have less patients per nurse, I'm taking money away. So what they did was they, we suddenly had no nursing assistants to work with. We were working on our own. So essentially we didn't gain any help. We actually lost because like I said, in previous episodes, nursing assistants are huge. I could be in a room saving someone's life and a patient in another room that is mine and I'm responsible for, they have to go to the bathroom. Well, they don't care that I'm saving someone's life. And because of HIPAA, I can't even tell them that I'm saving some, you know, someone's heart stopped beating. I'm working on them to get them to live. If I walk away, they die for sure. If I stay at, they have a chance to live that in the grand scheme of things. And even if you're not a medical professional listening to me say that you're like, oh my God, let her pee her pants because this patient's going to die. I'd rather pee my pants than die. Honestly, all of us would, if you had to choose, right? Um, but to that patient, they don't know what I'm doing. They don't care what I'm doing. They just know they have to pee. They have to get to the bathroom. And for them in that moment, peeing their pants is the equivalent of their heart stopping beating. And they're going to do what they got to do to get to the bathroom. They're going to get up unsafe. They're going to fall. Um, they're going to be angry and they're not going to be receptive to any teaching that I do on that shift. They're going to hate me. Um, they're going to hate everybody. They're going to hate the world, the air, all of it. Um, they might leave the hospital early. You don't know. It's going to affect them. Having an assistant means that if I'm saving someone in one room, my assistant can go take that patient to the toilet and keep that patient safe and happy. And they're going to have a better outcome. Now, take that away. And we're suddenly having more outcomes. I watched the unit I worked on. As soon as they did away with the CNAs, um, our falls increased. Every month we would have a meeting and the falls were increasing more and more and more and more each month. 
staffing at this time because it was so taxing and so dangerous, right? Because we could get a lawsuit because the patient fell and we maybe were supposed to, you know, check on them or something. And we couldn't because I was saving a patient and I didn't toilet them every two hours. Right. So I'm on the hook for that. And so my license is at risk because this hospital is making bad decisions and I'm leaving and I did leave. Um, but as you see the, as staff is leaving and we're becoming more and more and more short staffed, the opposite's happening with falls. We're getting more and more and more falls. So there there's your tipping point, right? It's if we're going to minimize staff and resources, we need to also be looking at complications. So falls, falls are huge, right? Falls, pressure injuries, all of those things are indicators that falls injuries, medical um, infections, like central line infections and medication errors. You can look at just those things and know if a unit is struggling because like I just gave you that example, less staff means less people available to respond in a timely fashion for patients and patients are going to, are going to get out of bed. They're going to fall. And so as you, the less staff you have, the more falls you're going to have. And as you're staffing, as that, you're going to get a bigger and bigger divide. And it's going to come to a point where the falls, the pressure wounds, the central line infections, the medication errors, the lawsuits associated with all of that, that is going to trump any single profit you're making by cutting a staff member. You could, in fact, hire one extra staff member than you had before, minimize all of those complications, and earn money. So why don't we? So why are we making these decisions, right? Um, I think I talked about in a previous episode that um, the chief financial officer is not working in the hospital. They're not seeing the patients. They might not even have a healthcare background, right? So many people in my finance class, I was the only one who worked in healthcare. I will tell you that for sure. So none of them, they could come work at the hospital that I work at and make all of the decisions and they have not one clue what I do. Not one clue. They don't know that the importance of having enough staff, they don't know the power of grandma who is confused and is going to get out of bed unless someone's right there to keep her in bed. They don't know. Um, they, how important it is to answer just a simple request for ginger ale. So how much that means to someone and what that means to someone, um, how quick it is to get somebody to the toilet, to be there for people to round on them. They don't really know. They're just looking at the numbers. And one of the biggest issues I had with finance was that they're making projections, which means they're making assumptions, which made me really uncomfortable because I was always told in healthcare, you never, 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 never make assumptions. Never assume anybody knows anything. Never assume anybody even if I have a world-renowned surgeon as my patients, I'm still going to treat them the same I would the bank teller who comes in and has the exact same surgery. I don't really know. I've worked with, um, had, you know, gas GI surgery um, for a, a, a really prominent patient in say, pedi- a doctor was a, a pediatrician 
and um but they've never had experience in abdominal surgeries and all of the complications and everything that you need to be doing to take care of yourself with with abdominal surgery so i can't assume that just because they're a doctor they know everything right um so i have to treat them and start from scratch and i might educate them on things that they already know and i'm counting on that person to say okay stop i already know this i know you know and they they could teach me back and tell me what they know and then i'm going to carry on where their knowledge gap is and figure that out from there but i never assume that they just know because they work in healthcare or they're a doctor um which is why when I'm a patient, I never come out and say, I'm a nurse because I want people, I haven't worked in every specialty. So I want my healthcare professionals to treat me like I'm a beginner and I might learn something from them. Right. Uh, and to take care of myself better. I'm, I'm coming to them because I need to take, I need to, you know, take care of myself better. There's something going on. Right. Um, otherwise I wouldn't be in the office. So making assumptions is really uncomfortable, um, from a healthcare standpoint. And the assumptions that these finance professionals are making are, um, this is the budget from last year. This is what happened last year. And then we're going to say the market is doing, you know, X, Y, Z, they have these standard equations that they can do to, to, to project what the company will do based on growth and investments and how things are going to progress. And they say, all right, this is, this is the financial plan for, for next year. Um, but there are assumptions, which means it's a guess. It's all a guessing game. It's an educated guessing game with fancy numbers and equations. Um, but they don't have the total picture. They don't have the total story. They just have numbers. And that is all they understand. Um, and that's not bad because I don't understand the numbers that well. Um, and so I do need someone who does understand the numbers. But the point that I'm trying to come at is finance professionals are a member of the team. You might've gone into finance, but you are now in healthcare right? You're in healthcare finance. And so there are things that you need to do that might seem counterintuitive, like I need to spend more money on staffing to make a profit. Even though the Ford model of leadership says, if I have less staffing, I can treat a patient with less money and resources. So when the insurance pays me $10,000, there's going to be more left over for profits. But if that patient has a pressure wound that costs another $20,000 to treat, the insurance is still going to pay me $10,000. And now I'm out $20,000. My profits are negative $20,000. All because this patient developed a pressure wound. All because I skimped on the staffing. So it's so much more complicated. And... I feel like in order to properly make decisions, we all need to work as a team. Everyone at the janitor needs to work with the chief finance officer in some way. We all need to work together because if you're making decisions based on numbers alone, if you're making decisions based on 
what is best for my customer? So how can I make more money from my customer? And the patient is the widget. You're never going to make the right decision. You might win in the short term. You might have a few good years, but if you knew your decision killed someone, um, maybe that patient that developed the pressure wound, it got infected, it spread to their bloodstream and they died because of it. Does that sit the same? Um, and those are, that's the reality of what we're dealing with in some places. So it is so important for everybody to work together and we need to have the pulse of the unit and we need to know what's going on and we need to look at the full picture. What I see happening often is that finance professionals or leaders, executive officers, I said in previous episodes, they do have the data. They do know how many falls are on a unit. They do know how many infections. They know all of that stuff. It's very important to know all of that stuff because it affects your finances, right? If you're not planning for something, then you're at risk of losing financially. And if your goal is to make your shareholders the most amount of money possible, you need to be prepared and you need... you. It needs to be in the budget, right? For errors. So they do actually, most hospitals, larger ones, um, especially they do have a budget for um, lawsuits so they can just pay people off because sometimes paying off a lawsuit, even if it, even if they could win, um, the cost of going to court is going to be too great that they're like, let's just pay these people off. We'll make them be quiet. And, and that's it. That's it. Um, it's so sad. I feel like lawsuits, mistakes shouldn't even be a budget item. Like get that off, figure out how you're going to save. You could pay an extra staff member so much less than you're paying out for that lawsuit. Yes, there's a chance that they won't file a lawsuit. And there's a lot of things that hospital legal team will do to minimize the risk. That even if there was a, um, a fall or an at-fault issue, hospital legal team, their job is to try and minimize the risk that they're going to get sued, regardless of who was at fault. Um, sometimes that looks like deceit. Sometimes that looks like just um, white lies or half-truths. And sometimes sometimes people just choose not to, right? They're like, oh man, that really sucks that that happened. But going through the lawsuit in the years and being dragged in the mud and having to sit on the stand is really scary. And people just don't, don't want to, don't want to put themselves through that. Um, but to have it a line item in the budget is where I'm having an issue with it. So I feel like there needs to be a shift somehow in that our patients are the primary focus. Our patients um, should not be the widget. Our patients are not a Ford truck. They'll never be a Ford truck. If you had no patients, insurance companies wouldn't pay you. Um, I think, I think right now with finance and how you make decisions that if you have 
how most insurance companies pay is that you're having this surgery and they valued it at this, it's cost this much money. Your patient, you had an office visit at the doctor's, this each insurance company says, okay, for that level of office visit, they have codes. There's one, two, three, and four, four is really complex. One is just, um, I think just a nursing visit, right? So just come in for the nurse for education, injections, wound care, whatever. That's a level one. And then a level four is a really long, complex, a lot of counseling with the doctor visit and insurance companies will value those with a base number. So it is like a level four would be X amount of dollars. A level one would be a lot lower than that. Right. And so hospitals and facilities are working within that model. So they're like, okay, no matter what, if we have this type of appointment, we're going to get this much money. So we need to try to do this type of appointment cheaper, faster, easier with less resources so that they can bridge the gap, right? Because if they're spending exactly the amount of money that they are um, getting, there's no profit margin. And I don't want you to confuse nonprofit hospitals with the fact that they don't want profit margins because you can be a nonprofit hospital and still really, really want a high profit margin. That is how your um, improvement, that's how your expansion prog projects might be funded. That is how um, you can recruit higher, better paying um, leaders, um, top name doctors. Um, if you have more money to play with, you have more options available to you. When a hospital does a huge expansion project, they have to fund it, right? It's not free. And so even if it's nonprofit, they still have an incentive to make as much profit as possible. Um, all of it might be dumped back into the hospital in one way or another, um, if they're honest, um, but that is still their goal, right? Now, this comes into a huge issue when you think about technology, right? So I recently just watched an NBC um, news clip from a nurse in um, another advocacy. It's National Nurses United. They are the ones who help um, nursing and hospitals develop nursing unions and they're huge patient advocates, huge advocates for the profession of nursing. They do really great work. Um, and, um, I have, I got an email with an, with a clip and it was about this patient who was on telemetry. So they were being monitored with a cardiac monitor continuously and the patient died. So they had an arrhythmia and they, and they died and it was because the monitoring, they weren't being monitored properly on the telemetry. If somebody had been monitoring the telemetry, they would have, they would have lived. And so they were talking about how this large corporation, multi-state, multi-hospital corporation was making their decisions on how these telemetry monitors were being, were being used and monitored and how the corporation was actually cutting corners and they were, they basically were to the tipping point where they've cut too many corners 
and now they're seeing complications rise. To understand what this means, I want to back up. So your heart is told to beat and what makes it beat is electricity. And you have this electrical current. It runs through your whole body, but it runs through your heart and the electrical current actually tells all of the chambers in your heart to beat. It'll tell the top chambers to beat, the bottom chambers to beat, keeps it regular and it's responsible for keeping your heart going. When we put telemetry on, it's kind of like an EKG in that it it's the same technology measuring the same thing. EKG is you put it on, you get a picture, it's a snapshot in time of the electrical current running through the heart. We can see a normal electrical current. We're like, okay, the electricity is working great in this heart. Awesome. We can see abnormal. We can say, oh, there's a blockage in the electricity. So something's happening. Um, you know, it goes, the electricity runs through every cell. So if there's a area, there's a blockage, say you're having a heart attack and you have a blockage in one of the blood vessels of your heart, the electricity is not going to run through that portion of the heart the same way that it would if there wasn't a blockage because the tissues are starting to die. And so you, you'll see that in your snapshot in your EKG. Now, when you have a cardiac monitor on continuously, you're monitoring mostly for um, irregularities, right? Um, and so people who are at high risk of developing those, it could be because they have a medication that could cause their heart to beat irregularly. Um, it could be that they have just had heart surgery and that could cause their heart because of the insult to it. Um, and one of the things we're monitoring for is something called arrhythmias. And those are when um, the heart, for whatever reason, the electricity is just kind of it's like short circuited and it goes up, runs amok and it doesn't work properly. And those are actually, when you see on TV and they're shocking people, they're shocking people out of the, they're, they're doing an electrical shock to get the heart electricity back pumping regular again. There's a couple of different types of, there's a lot of different types of arrhythmias that we monitor, but there's a few different ones that are life-saving if you catch them quickly. Um, it's like atrial fibrillation um, or no, not atrial fibrillation. I'm sorry, ventricular fibrillation, um, ventricular flutter. Um, those are the ones that are actually life-threatening. And so that is when, so you have the top chamber of your heart and the bottom chamber of your heart. So in reality, I don't know if you're not watching this in person. So in reality, the top chamber will beat and then, so you have the top chamber beating and then the bottom chamber will beat and then the top chamber and the bottom chamber and the top chamber and the bottom chamber. And that's normal. And your electricity tells each one when to, when to squeeze, when to pump. If you have the bottom chamber of your heart, if you have a short circuit there, you go into something called ventricular fibrillation where the bottom of your heart is just kind of quivering it's not really working. It's not telling it to pump. It's just electricity everywhere running amok, completely short-circuited, and it, the blood isn't pumping anymore. You can see this on a telemetry. And when you see that, you run. Uh, you don't walk. You don't wait. You don't ask questions. There's a very distinct, um, or there should be a very distinct alarm on your telemetry that's going to tell you that is dangerous run quick fast drop everything go and you can get there if you get there fast enough you can 
take care of your patient, their heart's going to, it's, they're quivering. They're not really getting oxygen flow going through their body and their heart's going to stop beating. They're going to, they will die with this rhythm if you don't save them. Um, I have a, so one night I was working on a cardiac floor and a patient went into this rhythm and three of us were at the nurse's station and we saw it on the monitor and we ran to the patient's room, all three of us quick as we could. Well, two of us ran straight to the patient's room. One ran to get the code cart because we knew we were going to have to shock this patient immediately. But when I arrived with the other nurse, the patient was still sitting on the edge of his bed, talking to his roommate. They were laughing. They were chatting. We walked in and we were like, um, sir, are you okay? And he was like, yeah, I'm fine. And then he lost consciousness. And then we had to, we had to call the code. But the point is we were there so quick that his brain didn't even have a chance to lose all of its oxygen and have him lose consciousness before we were there responding. We were there so fast. Um, that's kind of like a freak of nature event, but I feel like it must happen pretty, pretty often because I did remember one of my um, nursing instructors in nursing school telling me about that happening to them. And then it happened to me. And so I feel like I'm not, we're not the only ones with the story in that if you are responding to these emergencies quick enough, you can actually, like, you're going to have a really, I mean, that patient had a, had a good outcome. We were able to, to, to save them. Um, so recognizing when someone is in this type of rhythm is huge. And the quicker you do it, the better outcome, because we can respond like that patient, probably if nobody was in the room to catch him, when he lost consciousness, he would have fallen to the floor and hit it. He could have hit his head and had other, had other incidences, but we were already in the room and we caught him, got him on the bed and started CPR and, and, and we did our thing. There's also something else that we're monitoring too. So this ventricular fibrillation, it can be sustained where the heart is just beating all the time, or it can be intermittent almost. So you can have somebody's heart that's irritated. So your heart can be irritated by medications. It can be irritated by an imbalance of electrolytes. It can be irritated by surgery, by, you know, lots of other different things. Um, other illness can irritate it. But the thing is that when you're to monitor someone, you can catch somebody when they're having intermittent episodes. So we call them like runs of ventricular tachycardia. So VTAC, so runs of VTAC. So they'll have maybe like five, six beats of this ventricular tachycardia that can cause um, them, them, to, them to die, right? And if you're monitoring them properly, you're gonna recognize that and their heart might go back to normal rhythm after just like five beats, but we've seen the five beats. And so now what am I going to do? I'm going to call the doctor. I'm going to say, we need to do some labs. We have to do whatever. If the patient's on a medication that can cause an arrhythmia, we have to talk about maybe changing that medication, lowering the strength, changing medication. We're going to make, we're going to intervene before that patient has a life-threatening event because we've been warned and we have time to respond. Now, 
when this happens, so say a patient has a five run beat of what we call VTAC, ventricular tachycardia, which is where the heart short circuits and it can be for five beats. Those beats are fast. So this is how long it's going to take. Boom, 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 boom. Now, what if nobody was at the nurse's station, the, the um, secretary, the charge nurse, the other nurse, somebody went to the bathroom and that quick, boom, 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 boom. Even faster than that, actually, I just don't think I can actually say boom quick enough. Um, that's it. That's it. It's done. Unless I'm going to go back in the monitor, it's it. No one's going to catch it. Right. Someone had to be there to catch it. Um, there will be an alert. So like I can go back into the telemetry and I do, you know, multiple times a shift. It's standard practice and hospital policy. You're going to check your telemetry and all of your alarms. Um, if the, if the, um, someone was there and the alarm went off and then it stopped, it's up to like the charge nurse to tell me that I, your patient had an alarm, like the stat, the charge nurse would get up and look at the alarm and call me like, Hey, your patient just had a five run, uh, you know, a VTAC you need, you need to come and we, we need to, we need to look at this. Um, but at the same time, if nobody's able to see it, it happen so fast, you can't do anything about it. Right. And so if I missed that and we go six hours, six hours later, the patient still has the medication running at the same, their, their electrolytes, nobody's checked them. They're still off. Whatever was the cause of the run of the VTAC, I haven't made any changes. So it's likely to happen again. And if it happens again, it could be sustained where it's going to happen all the time. The patient's going to lose consciousness. We're going to have to try to resuscitate him. And let's be real. Sometimes we can't resuscitate people. So um, it is really life-threatening. And the scenario in this clip was that this hospital organization was outsourcing the telemetry monitoring. So um, I have questions. I don't know if the nursing staff in the hospital actually could see the telemetry strips themselves as a backup, right? Or if literally it was just a box on the patient and all of the data was gone to this outside source, um, you know, like these telemetry techs who are supposed to be monitoring all the strips. And then if a patient has a run of VTAC or something, they're supposed to call the nurse and tell the nurse, your patient just had this run and you need to go check on them. Um, and the issue was that the hospital was having one tech looking at upwards of 40 or more monitors, which is great. But if I'm looking at one monitor and another monitor has a five run VTAC, that goes really fast. Or what if that one tech has to go to the bathroom because they're a human and that's what we do. And they had to go pee and they left the room, went pee, came back. They missed it. They missed it. They missed it, but they have, they have alarms so they can go back and look, but they're looking at 40 different alarms and calling people. They'll look at the next one and call next one and call next one and call. It's going to take a long time. What if my patient was number 39 and they didn't get to them. And by then five, six hours has gone by and my patient has gone into sustained VTAC and I couldn't get to them. Lots of scenarios here. As a nurse, I would be really uncomfortable if my patient was being monitored by telemetry and I couldn't see the telemetry monitor myself. I would be really uncomfortable 
and um i wouldn't want to work in that situation because i'm on the hook for the monitoring right i should be knowing i should know if my patients in vtac i just told you a scenario where i saw a patient go into a ventricular rhythm and i showed up in the room and the patient was still conscious because i could get there so fast that i saw it and rushed ran like i was running the race of my life to their room and i got there before the patient passed out and I saved the patient and that patient had a better outcome because I was there. They didn't fall. They didn't hit their head. I was there. I caught them. Imagine you're in an outsource patient goes into VTAC. Now the tech has to call me wait for me to pick up my phone. I pick up my phone. They say your patient is in VTAC in this room. I'm running to them. Well, that time that they noticed it and called me and my phone rang and I picked it up. That was all the time that by then in that scenario where the telemetry was in the unit, I already had the crash car and I already had the patient hooked up to the, to the paddles or the stickers, the stickers were already on the patient. So I have issues with that, um, whole scenario. Um, I, like I said, I would not want to do it without having the telemetry where I could see it. I want to see the alerts. I want to get the alerts. I want to know what's going on. I would be so uncomfortable if I couldn't. Um, with that said, I know there are a lot of nurses who've never been in. If you work in that situation and the telemetry is outsourced, you're probably not trained to be able to read the telemetry strips. So you wouldn't know what you're looking at to begin with. And um, also, if you never developed a comfort level and the normalcy of monitoring the strips yourself, um, it might it, it might not be as uncomfortable for you that it is for me to be able to to see it myself and interact with the strips and and look at the monitors. Um, but either way, the issue the underlying issue was one they outsourced the telemetry monitoring to a central hub, which is away from the patient, which there is a barrier between, it might just be a phone call as the barrier, but there's a barrier from the staff that has the ability and capability to save the patient to save the patient. What if that tech had 40 patients and two of them went into a sustained ventricular rhythm at the same time? Weirder things have happened. If you keep going long enough, that will happen to you. Um, who do they call first? They got to call one person and then they got to call another. Well, that second person has been in the rhythm for longer and nobody's caught it. Right. So having that barrier is an issue for me, not being able to see the strips and monitor them myself. Since my patient, I'm monitoring my patient and I can't fully monitor my patient myself. Um, that's uncomfortable for me. Having somebody who I talk a lot about patients being disconnected from the patient. So um, I've had patients that looked like they've had a run of a ventricular rhythm and you go in and um, respiratory therapy has come in and they're doing like chest percussion, they're banging on their chest and you're like, oh my gosh, that's like insane. So knowing your patient, um, that's helpful. Um, being there, being connected to the patient. Um, there's, there's just some disconnect, right? Because to these texts, they're just strips on a monitor. They're not people, they're not humans. Um, 
I don't know. It, it's just something about that disconnect that really is uncomfortable for me. And then also the sheer number. So this is where we get into the finance and the, the nitty gritty of it is that they are thinking the thought is that this one tech, their whole job is to monitor the screens. They probably do have alerts to say, you know, this is going to alert you if for all of these things, you can set the alerts. Um, if you know your patient has a high heart rate, you can set it to, you know, you know, your patient maybe has an infection and they're going to have a heart rate of 102. That's their normal for right now. And you know it, um, but you, you'd be really worried if their heart rate got above 115, right? You can change the the high monitor rate, you, if it's on 100, you can change it so that it is, um, so that it'll go off, not at hundred, it'll go off at 115, right? So they do have alerts and they can respond to alerts. Um, but to give them the sheer number, like I said, if they are leave to go to the bathroom and come back and they missed a ton of alerts, they have to go through them all and it's gonna take time to get through. And the more patients they have that they're monitoring, the more alerts that they are monitoring. And one person can only realistically look at one thing at a time because we're humans with only one set of eyes and one brain. So I cannot be looking at 40 screens at the same time. On paper, it probably all works, but in practice with the human element of it, um, it's really dangerous. Another thing I see people um, centralizing um, with technology is sitters, um, patients who require more of a one-on-one -on -one setting. It, this could be a patient who is suicidal and they need to be watched because they came in for a suicide attempt and we need to protect them from themselves because there is a chance that they might attempt a suicide right there in the hospital, right? And so um, while we're getting them the, the medical treatment and the mental health care that they need to succeed, we need to keep them, we need to protect them. It could be confused grandma Susie who has a urinary tract infection and doesn't know what's good for her or not. She's normally wheelchair bound, but suddenly she's forgotten that and wants to get out of bed every five seconds. Um, we could have a one-on that qual would qualify for safety for a one-on-one -on -one to sit with her so that every time she tried to get out of bed, there was someone right there to redirect her or if she had to go to the bathroom, somebody right there to help her. She might not have the, the mental capacity to be able to ring the call bell, ask for help, wait for it and go. She's just impulsive. Got to get up, go. Um, some patients, uh, if they're in the ICU and they're intubated or have lines, um, they'll pull them. I don't know how many patients have pulled Foley catheters, balloon and all right out of their urethra, blood everywhere. You know, little old ladies pull their IVs. They're sitting in a pool of blood. Um, all of these would qualify for safety reasons, a one-on-one -on -one sitter, which if you're talking about one-on-one -on -one humans, you're talking about, you could be a lot of humans, right? I mean, at one point on one unit I worked, we had probably like eight sitters for people who fall risk pulling at lines, um, different things. And that was probably not everyone who really should have had a one-on-one. -on -one. That was just the ones that we got approved by the hospital to, to have it. Now we didn't have the number of staff. So they developed this technology where we could put cameras in the rooms and the cameras are watching the patients 24 hours. And the camera person has an alarm that they could hit to 
alert me to run to the room. Well, one problem with that is if I'm in another room tied up and the alarm's going off, I can't just drop a patient on the floor or stop saving someone so that I can run directly to the room, right? I have to be able to, um, like you have to be able to get to them in a timely fashion for this, this to work. Um, and also that one person is monitoring patients all over the hospital. So their eyes, we just said their eyes and their brain can only focus on one at a time. So they might have 15, 20 screens they're looking at, but can they really look at all 20 at the same time? No, they can only look at one. So they might catch somebody before they get out of bed right? They might, they might not catch someone. Somebody might be just subtly, you know, doing something and yank an IV and they won't catch it right away. Um, the more people that the remote technician monitoring these patients has, the longer it's going to take, or the longer it could take for them to spot an issue. And that's really, that's really, the heart of the issue, right? Is that just because it's decentralized, it doesn't mean that you can tack on as much as you want and increase the workload because maybe it works some of the time, but it only takes one of the time not to that it could kill someone, right? So we need to be making sound financial decisions. And I think finance professionals have an amazing job and an amazing role in that. But I think they need to, if you're going to work in healthcare, we need to get to the basics. We need to get one-on-one -on -one and we need to see what our patients need. I know the insurance company might be your customer and they might be paying you, but if you really want to treat your patients in the most effective way, time effective, cost effective, all of the resource effective, you really need to be in tune with what the patient actually needs. What does the staff actually need to care for that patient in the most effective manner? That's how you cut the corners. You give more resources some of the time, and that's how you increase your profit. You decrease broken equipment. You make sure that everything is properly staffed. You might have to hire an extra, an extra nurse, right? You might have to hire an extra tech so that your tech's monitoring the, the patients on camera. They can actually have fewer patients to monitor to make sure that they are spotting the people who are in danger quicker and easier. All of that looks like on paper initially a cost, but when you track it out, it's actually profit. And you have to understand the inner workings of healthcare and how all of these moving parts work together to give you that profit. So how does having enough nurses and CNAs on a unit decrease falls and decrease med errors and decrease infections and decrease pressure wounds? How does that work? You have to understand that in order to make the proper financial decision. And that's my challenge to chief financial officers everywhere around the world. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in today. And I hope you share this with your favorite healthcare leader. And um, I hope you found value in this. Um, I always love reviews on whatever podcast platform you are on. I 
the greatest honor, honestly, is for you to share my episodes and raise awareness for this work because the heart of the mission is to help save lives, to help be an advocate for patients, to help be an advocate for our staff, and really to help leadership make the best decision for the patients, their staff, and their hospital. And um, I can't do that without you. So thank you so much for listening and I will see you next week. Hey there, this is the part of the podcast where I get to make my lawyer smile. And I get to tell you that the purpose of this podcast is for educational purposes only. I am not a lawyer and therefore not your lawyer or giving you any kind of legal advice as well as I am a nurse, but I am not your nurse. And so I am not giving you any medical advice either. Take this information as educational and consult your doctor or your legal counsel as you see fit.